Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to continue the series I've been doing on the evolution of the various classes in Dungeons and Dragons. Now, first, before we begin and get into the topic, one change you might notice is that on the page for Podbean, poigamestudio.podbean.com, I did change it to Point of Insanity Network. And the reason for that change is, well, when I first started this podcast, I was just doing, of course, the Geekery in General podcast. And since then, I mean, but thanks to help from Chad and Lou and uh, some of Chad's other friends, the channel is pretty much evolved beyond being just geekery in general, because hopefully you've had a chance to uh, check out uh, Chad's other shows that he's uh, been doing, uh, whose podcast is it anyway, as well as uh, Musically Challenged, and then he's going to have a monthly episode that he's going to do, want to hear something interesting, and I've got some other plans I'd like to initiate eventually, someday, soon, I hope, because I've had some other ideas for other monthly shows I want to do, because, hey, apparently I've decided that I have too much free time on my hands, and obviously I need to occupy myself even more, so probably going to be doing some monthly episodes in the future with uh, just a few other things that I've been planning, so stay tuned for that. And I do apologize, as this episode is probably going to be shorter than my episodes on the Ranger and the Fighter, and mainly because I've been having problems getting my schedules to work out with uh, some of my friends who have been helping me with podcasting, and part of the reason is I've uh, had a couple things happen in the last few weeks that have been demanding a bit more of my time. Some of you may recall a couple episodes of Geekery in general ago. I, my friend Dawn and I, when we were doing the episode on the alignment test, I mentioned in that my mother had ALS. And it's she first started showing the symptoms back in July where she was having problems speaking. And then it started to progress. By September, she couldn't speak intelligibly anymore. By Thanksgiving, she needed a cane to get around. By Christmas, she needed a walker. And by the end of last year, she was stuck in a wheelchair. And we had her go into therapy because she was at the point where she couldn't really be alone by herself anymore. She couldn't take care of herself. But the doctor thought that with physical therapy, we might be able to get her to a point where she could at least get around on a walker again, and that would make it easier for the the nurses and the home care organization that were helping her around the house. Well, she was doing actually pretty good with her therapy, and I remember the therapist I talked to that was working with her said that she was actually quite impressed by my mother because in that home that she was in, 
usually when people in her condition were going through therapy, most of the time they didn't really put much effort into it. They pretty much accepted the fact that, you know, I'm stuck in this situation. It's never going to improve. But the therapist said that my mom was always very determined and never complained about doing the therapy. Well, she was making some progress and unfortunately she started to take a turn for the worse about two weeks or so ago and then she had to go into the hospital on the uh, the 27th. By the next day she could barely write anymore. She was communicating just by uh, writing and Unfortunately, by Monday, she was unresponsive and passed away later that evening. So, you know, that episode, the last episode I did of Geekery in general, where I was discussing ways to get in the mood, the quality on that episode was a little different because I was recording off my webcam instead of my USB uh, headset because uh, I was brought my computer down to my mom's house and... Yeah, unfortunately, probably about a half hour or so after I got done recording the episode is when I received the call from the uh, hospital that my mother had passed away. So um, all uh, last week, it's been kind of difficult and been really tough as we've, my sister and I have been working on, you know, the funeral arrangements as well as, you know, all the other stuff that happens when uh, your last surviving parent passes away. So... If my next few episodes are shorter and if they seem a bit rushed or if it seems like I didn't get as much chance to prepare for them, that's probably why, just because I've had that, um, unfortunately, taking a lot of my time. But on to today's topic, and that is we're going to talk about Mr. Lawful Goody Two-Shoes, and I did receive uh, some feedback from uh, listener Paul. He did send me a message on Facebook that uh, he, when I was uh, pronouncing it, I wasn't pronouncing the name of the class quite correctly, uh, and the correct pronunciation, Paladins. So hopefully, Paul, you don't cringe too much while uh, listening to this episode. I'm going to do my best to pronounce it properly instead of the usual way that I was pronouncing it. So going to be taking a look at the paladin and how he has evolved through the various editions of Dungeons and Dragons. Now the concept of the paladin is loosely based on a lot of what we would associate with the knight in shining armor who's you know noble and just and good and fair this you know wandering warrior who seeks to defend the poor and the innocent and defend uh ladies from dragons and all those all that other heroic good guy stuff and the second edition handbook does give some examples of uh paladins from history and literature uh they mention in there Sir Galahad the 12 peers of Charlemagne they don't mention it in the player's handbook, but I always considered the uh, King Arthur to be a good example of uh, Paladin. And 
in the legends and lore books when they did cover the Arthurian legends, that's actually the the class that they put him as. The original concept of the paladin uh, appeared in the Greyhawk supplement for basic Dungeons and Dragons. Now, since I haven't played that version and I don't have a copy of the Greyhawk supplement, I'm not sure exactly what it entailed. It was listed as a subclass of the Fighting Man, which would, of course, eventually evolve into the Fighter when we started to move into uh, basic D&D, and assuming probably combined some aspects of the Clerical class. But while we're on the topic of the BECMI edition, they did introduce a Paladin in one of the later supplements. I believe it was the companion set. Now, where I first learned about the basic version of the Paladin uh, actually is from the D&D Rules Cyclopedia. Now, the Paladin in basic is actually interesting in that it's, well, we can kind of see it as a forerunner to the prestige classes. Because in the BECMI rules, you couldn't start as a first-level paladin. Instead, you had to start out as a fighter. Once you worked your way up to ninth level, you had some choices. Because in this edition, it assumed that a fighter, once he reached that level, would probably go one of two ways. Some fighters would settle down and establish a stronghold. So if that's what you wanted to do with your fighter, there were rules for establishing a keep and what type of tra- what type of uh, followers and soldiers you would uh, draw to you. But what if you didn't want your fighter to settle down and establish a, a castle? Well, that's where the rules from the, again, I believe was the companion set came into play. Fighters at this level could choose one of three paths. The lawful fighters, they could become the paladin. A neutral fighter, as well as lawful fighters and chaotic fighters, also had the option of becoming a knight. And finally, chaotic fighters could become an avenger. So the avenger is more or less a an anti-Paladin, and we'll actually be talking about all three of these classes um, in just a moment here. Now, the Paladin in this rule set does have several abilities that were shared with the Paladin as he was uh, depicted in the first edition uh, rule book. Now, in order to become a Paladin, first you had to swear loyalty to a lawful religious order. And not only would this give you the title of the paladin, but you also gained some other abilities as well. You had the ability to detect evil, just like the paladin does in 1st edition. Also, they could turn undead. But perhaps one of the most interesting things about this version is the paladin in basic did not automatically gain the ability to cast clerical spells. Instead, the paladin had to have a wisdom of at least 13. 
you could still become a paladin if you your wisdom was a 12 or less, it's just you wouldn't be able to cast those spells. Now, other than that, not really much to the paladin. They're more or less a fighter with some clerical abilities, as well as the ability to turn undead. They did have a couple of restrictions that were put in place to help with the role-playing aspect of this character. First, he could only have a number of hirings equal to his clerical level. So, in this case, you couldn't have a paladin that was traveling around with a huge entourage of, you know, 20 archers and, you know, five mounted knights and, you know, a leader. And this makes sense because, again, in this edition, the paladin is a wandering fighter. He's not a fighter that decided to settle down and establish a stronghold. Another one of the restrictions that this character had is that he has to assist anyone who asks for help unless he knows that they're evil or they're trying to get him to achieve evil goals. So aside from that, the paladin was expected to offer reasonable assistance to anyone who needed it. Now for those Uh, lawful fighters who chose not to become a paladin or who didn't meet the requirements, they could also become a knight instead. And the knight in basic, this is what you would associate with a lot of the knights that you hear about from tales from the, the Middle Ages. So the reason that the knight differed from the paladin is... He swore loyalty usually to a king or a lord of some kind as opposed to a lawful religious order. Now, in exchange for this uh, oath of loyalty, the knight was expected to answer a call to arms. So if the king or the emperor uh, sent this proclamation that you know all these knights have to help him with some great battle the knight was obligated to respond. Also, because of his high standing, he could visit any castle or territory within the kingdom and request sanctuary. So he could request food or drink and shelter. Now, that's the main advantage of being a knight. It did have a couple of disadvantages. Uh, First, the knight had to obey just about any order that his king gave to him. So this could make for some interesting uh, role-playing situations. And of course, if the knight did refuse his liege's orders, or if he was to refuse a call to arms, that probably would pretty much paint a big old target on his back. And it wouldn't be surprising if the, the king or the emperor chose to plot against that knight for his failure to obey. And finally, we have the Avenger. And the Avenger, well, it's more or less the opposite of the Paladin. So we could say that this is, well, technically, I don't think it's the first attempt to create an anti-Paladin. I do remember there was an old issue of Dragon Magazine where they did create a non-player character class called the Anti-Paladin. And it wasn't just a you know a mere image of the paladin instead 
it was, well, they did have some abilities that were essentially reversed, but they did have a few other things that were unique to them. But in order to become an Avenger, you had to be a chaotic fighter, and you had to swear allegiance to a chaotic religious order. And this wasn't necessarily an oath of loyalty like the Paladin took, but instead it was more or less kind of a loose agreement. Remember, we're talking about chaotic characters here, so, you know, they're not, those types of characters generally are very hesitant to enter any sort of formal agreements or alliances. The Avenger could detect evil, just like the Paladin could. And also, if he had a high enough wisdom, he could also cast clerical spells as well. Now, the Avenger also had the ability to turn undead, but unlike the Paladin, if he got a good enough roll, a result that would uh, indicate a turn or a destroy, then that means he could attempt to control the undead instead of turning them. Moving on to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons... For 1st and 2nd edition, I'm going to lump those two editions together because there's not that much difference between a 1st edition Paladin and a 2nd edition Paladin. Now, Paladins were fairly rare, and part of it is because of some of the role-playing aspects of the class I think were unappealing to some gamers, but the main thing that made it a lot tougher to get a paladin in these editions was that 17 charisma. Now granted, if you get some lucky rolls, it's not that hard to generate a character that has at least one 17, especially if you're using the rule to, you know, roll 46 and drop the lowest. Or depending on the game master, what some game masters I've seen do is 46 drop the lowest, And if you roll a 1, you get to re-roll it. So that's what a couple of my former game masters would usually do. Now that 17 charisma probably made it fairly unattractive to some of the people I've played with. Because many of the gamers I've, I've played with over the years, usually charisma and intelligence were the dump stats. So you know how sometimes you've got a game where... If if you're allowed to distribute your statistics, usually the dump stats are the ones that you're going to put your lowest abilities into. And I know for me anyway, usually intelligence and charisma were the ones to uh, that had to take the dump because, well, I usually played a lot of warriors, generally fighters and rangers. And sometimes I would play a fair amount of clerics, played paladins every now and then, But when you're playing a ranger or a fighter or or a cleric, generally intelligence and charisma are not as necessary as some of the other stats. So yeah, having to put that really high 17 into a stat that some people used as a dumping ground for the lowest, not necessarily the first place they would want to put a, a 17 or an 18. So let's take a look at some of the abilities that Paladins had in 1st and 2nd edition. Now, in 1st edition, they originally started out as a subclass of fighter, just like they were in 2nd edition. But with the release of Unearthed Arcana, that actually changed, where now 
the paladin was no longer considered a subclass of the fighter, but rather a subclass of the cavalier. So the cavalier was a an upper-class noble warrior from a powerful family that usually served some sort of higher cause, be it a king or a religious order or a deity. And their bread and butter was mounted combat. But while the cavalier was a class in first edition, some of those abilities did carry over into second edition with the release of the Complete Fighter's Handbook. And in the Complete Fighter's Handbook, I remember they said that it wasn't necessary for all Cavaliers to be Paladins, but for a character who wants to be every bit the knight in shining armor, then a Paladin with the Cavalier kit made a lot of sense. So in addition to their ability to use any weapon and any armor that they chose, the Paladin did gain clerical abilities at ninth level, and also gained the ability to turn undead, but again, nowhere near as effectively as a, a cleric would. They did have some pretty hefty role-playing restrictions. They could only accept henchmen that were of good alignment, or specifically lawful good. And while they could work with uh, henchmen and hirelings of differing alignments, it was expected that they would only associate with non-good characters for no longer than necessary. And depending on how you want to role-play it, the paladin could see himself as a role model, how he should try to inspire these non-good henchmen to take up the cause of good and follow the same moral codes that he does. Paladins also had some restrictions in regards to wealth and magic items. In both editions, they did have to tithe a certain percentage of the treasure they acquired to a church, charity, or other charitable cause. And I think one of the big deal-breaking restrictions for some players, other than of course having to be lawful good and human, was the fact that paladins could only possess a certain amount of magic items. You were only limited to 10 items, which could only consist of four weapons, one shield, one suit of armor, and four other magic items of your choice. Now, fortunately, if your paladin did use missile weapons, uh, things like arrows and crossbow bolts didn't count I'm not sure how to really rule the whole thing about the four miscellaneous items. Personally, I wouldn't enforce that rule when dealing with uh, disposable items like potions or scrolls, but I mean, I could see other more permanent magic items being uh, falling under that four uh, limit restriction. Now, there were some good benefits, though, to make up for the those restrictions, they did have the ability to lay on hands, which was nice. They had the bonus to saving throws, plus two to all saving throws, which was <laughs> really nice. The ability to cure diseases, as well as immunity to diseases, and their ability to radiate protection from evil all helped ease the 
you know, ease the burden of having those restrictions. And I just have to say, probably one of my favorite images from the first edition player handbook. Uh, if you have your first edition player's handbook nearby, why don't you go grab it and crack it open to page 23, where you've got a warrior in full plate mail and with his sword and shield gallantly fighting off a horde of devils. And it's uh, one of my favorite pieces by uh, the late uh, David Sutherland titled A Paladin in Hell. So that that picture always just did it for me. I mean, I'd have to say if I had to choose an image from first edition or some of the earlier editions back when the artwork hadn't quite gotten to the quality where it was in later editions, that picture summed up Dungeons and Dragons for me in a nutshell. Well, as we move past first and second edition, you're going to find that I'm going to start to have a little bit less to say about the Paladins in third, fourth, and fifth edition, mainly because I don't have experience playing these classes in these editions. Because I have played Paladins in first and second edition, but beyond that, I've pretty much just played Fighters and Rangers. But the Paladin does retain a lot of the flavor that uh, it had in the first and second edition. Now, looking at the 3.5 handbook, they do have uh, Ella Handra, which was their iconic paladin. The artwork's okay, but I don't know, just the, the way that it's designed with more in earth tone colors and how the paladin has the, the bow slung across her back. I don't know. That picture doesn't really, it doesn't say paladin to me. That, I don't know, I always thought that looked like it would be more appropriate as a picture for a ranger, but eh, moving on. Again, still retained a lot of their similar abilities, but I would have to say one of the things that I do find most intriguing about the third edition paladin and is it's how they incorporated charisma into some of this class's abilities. Like one of the abilities I remember, Smite Evil, which allowed the Paladin to add their Charisma bonus to the attack roll. There was also the Divine Grace ability that allowed the Paladin to gain a bonus to their saving throws. So I like it how they did that, where now, well, granted in 3rd edition, it wasn't necessary to have a really high Charisma to be a Paladin, but... The fact that your charisma actually did something more than make you a really likable uh, person, it did give you some effects that I think actually did make sense in when you consider what a paladin is supposed to be and how they're supposed to act. Oh yes, another ability which I forgot to mention in uh, second and first edition was the paladin's warhorse, their mount, which... You know, of course, didn't always have to be a horse. I believe in the second edition Complete Paladin's Handbook, or maybe it was in uh, one of the other various books, they did mention some alternatives to a war horse. Because, well, let's say you are your, your campaign takes place in a desert culture, you know, or a desert kingdom. In a case like that, 
it might make sense to have a different type of animal as your mount as opposed to just a, a normal war horse. And like the other classes in 3rd edition, there were no more racial restrictions. So while previously a paladin could only be human, now you could have a paladin of any race you wanted to, which personally I'm kind of mixed on how I feel like that. I don't think it really detracts from a campaign, and I don't think that 3rd edition suffers for dropping race restrictions. I guess it's maybe just because I'm old school where I kind of grew up with this idea that only certain races can be wizards and only certain races could be a ranger. Only certain races could be a paladin. So, I don't know, maybe it's just my, you know, old school, grumpy old gamer uh, thought train of thought here. <laughs> now, moving on to 4th edition... This is where we see another really major change in the Paladin, and that is they dropped the lawful good alignment restriction. Again, I'm not sure how I really feel about this. I do like how they did try to explain it, where now a Paladin isn't necessarily this warrior in service to the cause of you know, absolute law and goodness. Instead, they're more, more or less a, you know, a, a divine champion. So that's the way I believe they described it in uh, 4th edition. So I guess in that regards, it makes more sense that you could have paladins that uh, are of alignments other than lawful good, but I don't know. I guess it's my grumpy old gamer uh, mindset that still makes me look at a, you know, think of the idea of a non-lawful good paladin and say, get off my lawn, get, get, get your chaotic good paladin off my lawn, you know, so, but anyways, as far as the class abilities, I did like how they did introduce the divine challenge, and again, the way that worked is he would mark your target, which essentially forces a, a target creature to only do battle with you, and while it could certainly attack your allies, it would suffer penalties if it didn't attack just the the the, the paladin. So I guess I the thing I like about that, or how the reason I I think that is a good addition to the the class at this point is because while well, with fourth edition. It is designed to have a more tactical feel to it, at least from my limited experience playing it and just reading through the handbook and looking at how the, you know, how the different uh, classes were rewritten for this edition. And it really reinforces the idea of the paladin being this, you know, this defender where he could use that ability if let's say you know uh, an ogre was going to attack a party member who was severely weakened the paladin could protect that party member by using this divine challenge forcing that ogre to draw his attention away from his weakened ally and onto himself so that's a nice little feature that i do uh, think adds a lot to the class at this point in the game well, this brings us to 5th edition, the latest, and 
again, I haven't had a chance to really experience the Paladin in this edition, but I have to say the thing I do like about it the most from what I've read, I do like the concept of the Sacred Oath, where now, once you get to a certain level, you choose something that becomes your life's purpose. And the three options that they give in the core handbook, the Oath of Devotion, the Oath of Ancients, and the Oath of Vengeance, I think they complement each other rather nicely, because while you could certainly see a lawful good character working within, well, at least two of those oaths, the Oath of Vengeance, well, it'd be kind of hard to really justify a lawful good character in there. You could still see some of those oaths as making sense for a character that's supposed to be some sort of divine champion or holy warrior. The first one, the Oath of Devotion, I think this one is most appealing towards gamers who like the classic idea of the paladin, this knight in shining armor who protects the innocent and seeks to spread truth and justice through the world. So that is probably the best one for us old school gamers, those of us who, you know, we hear the idea of non-lawful good paladins and we're like, you know, you know, get get off my lawn, you you know, you young whippersnappers. That's you know, that's not a, what a paladin is supposed to be. Now, the oath of the ancients. I like this one, and I think that if I ever get around to playing a paladin in fifth edition, this is probably the one that I would take. It's a paladin that is more concerned with the the preservation of life and the natural world. So I could see this type of a uh, an oath working well for a, a paladin character that chooses to work with rangers or druids. Finally, there's the Oath of Vengeance. And here they refer to the, well, they call back to the uh, chaotic version of the paladin from basic where they uh, call them avengers or or dark knights and honestly this is one that i could kind of see working with a lawful good but it would be kind of difficult i could see it working rather well with some of the other alignments so the oath of vengeance is more or less the paladin who seeks to bring about retribution and justice by any means necessary. I mean, I could see this oath working particularly well for a character that experienced some sort of great traumatic event somewhere between uh, first level and third level. Now, as far as what deities would be best for that alignment... I could see any sort of deity that was into this concept of dark justice, where sometimes if you are going to fight evil, you don't take the high ground. You take yourself down to their level, but more as a matter of necessity as opposed to, uh, you know, a desire to do these things. You're just doing it because that's how you're going to make sure that justice is done by 
taking the low road, by fighting dirty. Well, I think we're going to draw this episode to a close now. And uh, I guess I do apologize. It's a bit shorter than uh, my other episodes. But uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to start putting together uh, some more well-organized and a uh, little bit longer episodes for you guys. But I'd like to thank you all again for listening. And uh, remember, uh, it's now Point of Insanity Network. I'm not sure how it's going to affect searching for it on iTunes, but uh, you should still be able to find it by searching for geekery in general. Um, otherwise, just remember, it's now Point of Insanity Network, and hopefully you've had a chance to check out some of the other shows. And uh, when I finally get my act together and put some of my other ideas in motion, I hope you guys will enjoy those uh, shows as well. So with that said, thank you for tuning in, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.